Hi, Monica here. Before we play our show, I want to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become part of our group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. We can only do this work with your support, and right now your donation will be doubled by Newsmatch. So please just take a minute, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation. Thank you so much. Now here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, contact. Making, making, making contact. In some parts of the world, traditional herbal remedies are the norm. When we think of natural remedies, we tend to think of older generations living in remote areas in faraway countries with little access to modern healthcare. Rarely do we think about the ancient medicinal plants that might exist in our very own cities. Making contacts, Anita Johnson has more. Nestled in the skyline hills of Oakland, California, residents have a volcano in their backyard at Sibley Volcanic Regional Preserve. It's an old volcano, really, really old, 10 million years old, they say. And the entire park is structured around the energy of this volcano as it exists today. There's certain trails which are just old lava rock trails. And over the 10 million years, lots of medicine plants have evolved here. And that's what we're on the hunt for today. I haven't been here in a while, so we're just going to go like I go, looking to see what we can find. So let's go this way. Michelle Elizabeth Lee, a practitioner of traditional plant medicine, and a native of Oakland, California, was raised in a family of traditional healers from Mississippi and Louisiana. On this day, I joined her for a walk at Sibley to look for medicinal herbs and plants that grow wildly in the preserve. Now, we're going to go down this trail a little bit, and then we're going to go up. As I know we were talking about thistle last time, and we were looking for it, and there was a lot that was dried up. So this is a thistle right here, and that is um, related to like the milk thistle, which we talked about, which is very, really good for your liver and your kidney. And um, thistle in general is a blood cleanser and a mental stimulant. Um, you can actually even eat it. If this is an edible plant, if you can pick off all of the spines, because you see there's a lot of spines here, and you would just take your knife and try to pick them off either on the stem here or on this part here and eat them. It would be a lot of work to do. But if you're really hungry and out in the woods and need to eat, you can eat that. And then in terms of cooking it, I would just chop up the leaves and all of it and put it in a um, the, the balls, the leaves, everything, and put it in uh, some cheesecloth so the spines and all of the other stuff don't get out and soak it in hot water or lukewarm water for half a day and let the medicine come out and drink it. So, you know, you might want to use a tablespoon. I kind of guesstimate anywhere from a teaspoon to a tablespoon. Michelle's the author of Working the Roots, over 400 years of traditional African-American healing, a collection of natural medicine, and health practices that emerged out of the necessity to survive. This right here, which is pine cones, which is also good medicine. 
you know, that you would use with the pine tar, the pine sap from the tree and the leaves. And you'd want it, not want it to be as dry as that, but if it was, I'd still use it when I'm making a big brew of pine to deal with colds, cough, and congestion, or as immune booster, because there's tons of vitamin C in pine. I would take that pine cone, put it in a pot with a bunch of t pine needles to cover the bottom with slicing off a piece of uh, tree bark or wood that has some pine tar sap on it, putting it in there, throwing some water on top, putting some lemon in there, boiling it, steeping it down, and then topping it off with some peppermint, can you know, that peppermint candy. I wouldn't use that today. That's what the old folks use. I would actually use peppermint and put some honey in it. The described remedies are derived from African, Native American, and European cultural practices. Many natural healing traditions emerged during the period of colonization and slavery in the United States. Experts like Michelle Elizabeth Lee are bringing life to these home remedies that were once paramount for survival. I met up with Michelle at Joaquin Miller Park in Oakland, California, to learn more about plant medicine and what inspired her to preserve this history of traditional African-American healing in North America. It's a tradition that I grew up with that I just thought everybody else grew up with, and it wasn't until I got older that I realized it was really something special. And people would look at black folk medicine or hoodoo medicine as something like old wives' tale. Mm -hmm. And I knew that these remedies and the knowledge went so far deep into a medicinal practice that I wanted people to know, no, this is, these aren't old wives' tales. These are tried and true, proven remedies that work and that people knew how they worked and why they worked. And so there's that knowledge that's there. That's one. The other one was I wanted to, I felt like uh, as uh, black folks, uh, African-Americans, indigenous African descendant Americans, we're often not given um, the credit for the amount of expertise and knowledge that we have and that we brought here in order to survive. And then I felt like on the spiritual side, I felt like my ancestors were telling me to do this, to document the tradition uh, before all of the old folks, more of the old folks die off who carry the knowledge. Inspired to maintain and pass down the knowledge of her ancestors, Michelle delved into a six-year project. From 1996 to 2002, she spoke with herbalists, healers, and community elders, mainly from the southern region of the United States, to hear firsthand accounts of how people use plant medicine for healing. Hattie Hazel Pegues Clark, who is from Scotland County in Laurel Hill, North Carolina. And one of the things that, um, and, she, and she was, we were about the same age, I'm 62 now, so back then. And her son, Junior, and my son were good friends when we lived down in North Carolina. And um, one of the things that she told me, and she, she used these types of medicines, these traditional medicines, all her life. You know, most of the black folks down there, a lot of them have the intersection of the African and the indigenous. And um, she said that during the times when her children were teething, her grandmother would go and find a wasp nest that was empty. And she would get it so that they can teeth on the wasp nest, which was also would be like a 
anesthetic for their gums and also give them something to gnaw on. So I thought that was that was pretty amazing. Where, where are you going to find a, a wasp nest, right? And she says, uh, let me read some from the book. Um, I was raised in the country, way in the country, John Station area in Laurenburg, North Carolina. I was naturally born right here on Sneeds Grove Road. Little house still standing up, bless its heart. You see that chimney part right there? And we actually went out into the field to see that little house, which was covered in vines. My father was born and raised in South Carolina, right near McCall. His mother was Indian, and his father's mother was Indian. On my mama's side, my grandmother was Indian too, a Cherokee. Her name, now get this, was Calafia White. Like Queen Calafia, I was like, wow, how from way back then, and that their knowledge, their connection to who we are much, much is probably deeper than we realize. She was a pretty brown-skinned woman. She had straight hair, reddish. I loved her hair. She taught me a lot. My grandmother taught me, my mama, how to use the medicines, and they both taught me. Rabbit's tobacco is the best medicine. I make tea from rabbit's tobacco every year starting in October. So there we go with the preventative, you know, um, remedies, uh, treatment, so that you don't have to go like, oh, she's really sick and now I've got to, you know, get her to be unsick. If you're taking care of yourself and doing the preventative all year long, uh, the cleansing, seasonal and all of that, then you don't have to get the heavy duty medicine and get sick. Talk about the rabbit's tea. What is that? Yeah, she do the rabbit's tobacco. Well, rabbits, have you heard of rabbit's tobacco? So rabbit's tobacco is also known as cat's foot, everlasting, life everlasting, uh, poverty weed, sweet balsam, um, a number of different uh, folk names. It is good, good for colds, congestion, and flu. The health benefits and medicinal properties are anti-inflammatory, anti-spasmodic, antiviral, diuretic, it's an expectorant, and also can be a mild sedative, so that that expectorant deals with congestion and flu. Rabbit tobacco was a popular medicine and a tobacco substitute used by children in rural areas because of its mild sedative effects, so I guess they were getting a little high. Rabbit tobacco medicine was smoked for respiratory ailments, which I have smoked it before. Put it into it. Thank you. Now I'm, I'm remembering uh, in a pipe, you know, and uh, you would think that if you have respiratory ailments or if you're coughing, you wouldn't, but they did. Um, put it into a pipe and you would smoke it and um, it would help to relieve sinusitis and head colds and congestion. Um, in hot teas, it was used to treat viral infections, sore throats, fevers, diarrhea, colds, congestion, flu, pneumonia, asthma, and coughs. Rabbit tobacco may also have diuretic and antispasmatic properties. It's an herb that is often used uh, with other healing herbs in uh, preparation to treat other ailments. How did you come in contact with these people? Well, it was by word of mouth. You know, some I started off with my family, and then I, then they would tell me someone else, and then they would tell me someone else, and they would tell me someone. I mean, that's really how it went by word of mouth. Um, simple as that. Whether wherever I was living at that time, 
why was it important for you to include the stories of these people in the telling of traditional, you know, healing medicines? Well, because let me just read this part. In each section that I in interviewed, I talk about the people's lives, but also there's a whole section on ailments and remedies. Like, for example, Mrs. Wood says, and this is why it's important. When I was growing up, I never heard nobody having no high sugar or high blood pressure. None of that in those days. Several people told me that. People made their own remedies and healed themselves because in those days they didn't see no doctors and they weren't able to. They didn't have the money. The doctors would come if you had the money and send for them, but it depended on how far they were from you because they drove a horse and didn't have no cars. So it was important for me to have their words authentically because in the academic world, too often... Um, it's misinterpreted or then it's regurgitated in from the point of view of the academic. And I wanted to steer clear of that because it was, it's them. It's not me. It's not about me. It's about them and their wisdom. And um, that's why these, and that's all of the stories connect. The ailments and remedies by themselves are not fully understood unless you knew who she was, where she came from, and who she knew that her ancestors were. She knew her grandparents, her great-grandparents, you know, and Mrs. Ola B. Hunter-Woods, in each section I put down when the person was born and when they died. So she was born October 2nd, 1905. It's stories like Ola B. Hunter-Woods and Hattie Pegues Clark and the use of rabbit's tobacco that reflect a traditional knowledge of a people and their connection to the land. A cultural consciousness that helped folks thrive despite the moral depravity of colonization and slavery. Early on, when we were stripped of everything. Brandy Mack, she's a holistic health educator and permaculture designer. We had to leave some of our things like our shade nuts and, you know, but we were smart and put certain seeds in our hair and braided them into corn rolls and brought the plants over and planted them. Right. Because sometimes master will leave you somewhere for days till they found who owned you. So we would get over here and still plant out the medicine that we needed essential and dandelions and things that need to happen. Right. It was this deep knowledge about herbal medicine combined with the need to survive that allowed traditional African-American and indigenous healing practices to flourish. We can see examples of this impressive medicinal plant expertise in the life stories of people like Hattie Pegues Clark or George Washington Carver. If one should want to get an example of early botany and medicine folks, George Washington Carver was so smooth and, and smart, and I'll say, but also frail, because part of what allowed George Washington Carver to stay and become the botanist that he was, was that he was able to go out to talk to the trees, and he would come back and be able to fix a tincture for Massa, and he would feel good. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you making this stuff, and it's making us better when you go out and talk to these plants and trees and things. So we'll give you a little, a little cabin to, to make up those concoctions. So it was more than peanut butter. I always have to remind folks, because this is the one thing, again, the society will, as soon as we hear George Washington Carver, oh, that was peanut butter. That was like one of the last things that George Washington Carver elevated and brought to this country um, around holistic medicine. It's this overlooked history that many healers and holistic educators like Brandy Mack 
and Michelle Elizabeth Lee are working to hold on to in the face of adversity and modernization. Well, when people migrated up from the South to the North, you know, a lot of them wanted to, they felt they were too countrified and didn't really understand the value of being countrified or having all of this land instead of moving up into a, you know, an apartment or a tenement in a little lot in the North. And, um, and then just leaving, a lot of folks, you know, said that they, they didn't, the people I interviewed, but that their children or people they knew would go up north and leave the countryfied medicine. You know, so maybe it skipped a generation or two before we came, you know, back to it. And then um, throughout gentrification in all across the country, that is actually just destroying the habitat where a lot of the herbs uh, used to be. As when we went out, I, we would go to different spots, and, and I, I was looking where to take you. I was like, okay, well, a year ago, there used to be a field of comfrey and mullein and these other herbs here. Now there's two buildings that are here. People are looking at some of the plants and, and as weeds, you know, and um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, invasive, you know, and that they don't want them there, and they're they're replacing them with more drought-resistant, I quote, unquote, because if the weeds are there through the drought, then they're also (laughs) drought-resistant and they're medicine, you know. But these other plants that are more decorative that really aren't doing anything except making the landscape look decorative um, and could possibly be damaging the soil, particularly if they put the um, wood chips down, which are uh, most of them have dye in them. So that is really, it's, it's, it's damaging our access or ability to go out and get these medicines that used to be out there, you know. Michelle is acknowledging not only the extreme environmental devastation that comes with industrialization, but also the total loss of ancestral ways. Um, you know, we don't have our sense of community and self and um, um we never had sovereignty within in this country, but at least to be able to contain who we are. And as I like to say, the comfort and confidentiality of the black community. And since that, that's been pretty much decimated and absolved and we are absorbed into the dominant culture now, then we're kind of like going along that way and our ancestral ways are lost. Um, it's not being passed down. Um, and so everyone's being pushed in going towards corporate medicine, uh, to heal themselves. I mean, if, if we don't control our destiny, if we don't control our communities and our environment, if we don't control the knowledge of our history and, and we're not taking command of it, then we're, it's difficult for us to do this because we don't know who we are and where we came from, you know, and what we did in order to survive. So it's, it's difficult. It's challenging. That's Michelle Elizabeth Lee, author of Working the Roots, Over 400 Years of Traditional African-American Healing. You're listening to A History of Traditional Root Healing on Making Contact. To stay up to date with our shows and get more information about the people profiled in this episode, visit us at radioproject.org. Now back to A History of Traditional Root Healing on Making Contact. 
And then th this down here, as you can see, these are, it has some nice leaves on it down here that you can actually eat if you need to eat it. You can make your mustard plaster for congestion, you know, on your chest. And um, um, bronchitis, you know. Um, I think we talked about that, how to make that last time. If not, it's in the book. And then also these leaves down here, these are some nice big mustard leaves. And it does taste like mustard. Here's another one over here. I have some tobacco here. And whenever I come into the forest, you know, I know that there are particularly special energies here in the forest, and I like to offer something back always, like as a prayer. So I offer the tobacco and a little bit of water, especially if I'm going to take anything out. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's Estrella Davina. She's a mentee and friend of Michelle, who joined us for our walk through the Sibley Volcanic Regional Preserve. With this offering of water to the land, both Estrella and Michelle exhibit an indigenous practice of respect of the land and reciprocity. Michelle Elizabeth Lee. A lot of times I'll just say Ashe Aho, you know, which is Ashe, which is African, Aho, which is native. Um, so, you know, particularly when we take something that we're not supposed to take, that karmic energy comes back. And the same like Sister Estrella was saying in, in the forest. Uh, a lot of times when I go out to gather stuff from up north or here, I'm usually by myself, and I'll sing my own songs. You know, there's really only one song that I remember <laughs> that I learned in North Carolina, but it's so powerful. And I'm going to sing it to you right here, and it's very short. I'll walk through the forest, and I'll talk, talk to my ancestors or talk to, you know, other ancestors of friends that I know, and I say, Tani Wachiaho, Tani Wachiaho, Wonton Kataya, Wonton Kataya, Tani Wachiaho, Tani Wachiaho, Wonton Kataya, Wonton Kataya. That means great spirit energies of the universe. I'm here. I am grateful and thankful for you. I'm walking in the way that I hope honors you and in a balance of you. So acknowledging all of the spirits and the energy uh, for good. And I usually carry a stick. This is what my grandmother, my Mississippi grandmother, had told us. You know, taking a stick, and it's also in the book because it had been confirmed by uh, Sister Imani Ajanaku who had the Botanica way back on the day on Foothill and High in Oakland or 47th. You take, find a stick, and you hit it on the ground three times and you call your ancestor. Now, my, great, my grandmother taught us that a long time ago when I was a young girl, particularly if we were in trouble. Now, if you get in trouble, call Mama Edmonia. Call Aunt P. Zoot. Hit it three times in the ground. So usually I look for a stick while I'm walking. I'll sing my song. I'll just talk to the ancestors and I hit my stick. These traditions demonstrate a core principle of reciprocity and understanding that the earth doesn't belong to us, but rather we belong to the earth. This awareness that we are all interconnected was instilled in Michelle at a young age by her elders. Now it is her responsibility and passion to pass this knowledge on to the next generation. 
I enjoy um, speaking about traditional African-American healing practices. I enjoy um, talking about the history of our people in this country, much of it which is not um, told. A lot of schools don't teach history anymore. So I interweave them together, impart history as well as that knowledge base to keep it going and to hopefully spark an interest um, in the youth and the people I'm talking to to continue this tradition and to explore more and also most, most importantly so that they can take their own health in their hands. I also like um, giving information, uh, the historical and the medicinal knowledge information because I want people to know, and particularly the, the youth to know, that we come from a tradition of resiliency, of scientific and medical knowledge, of being able to be Jedi and pivot in our situations no matter what they have been and are today and continue to thrive. And I really love starting off um, my talks and conversations with, did you know it was an enslaved African who taught the process of inoculation against smallpox that led to a vaccine. That was the first instance of inoculation slash vaccine in this country, in colonial America, let me say. And it was brought here by an enslaved African named Onisimus, who showed the person who was enslaving his master because so many people were dying of smallpox and they had no cure for it. And a lot of enslaved Africans were not because they brought that tradition from Africa. So our knowledge base, our resiliency, our ability to persevere and to make anew and survive is astounding. And oftentimes, historically, uh, we don't hear that, whether we're getting the kind of manufactured uh, educational version of history of this country um, and, uh, or from somewhere else. Uh, it always just deals with, and a lot of times, our history here being enslaved and coming out of slavery. Well, when we came here, we brought our knowledge and our abilities and our perseverance to not only move the, the whole country forward, but also to survive and thrive and to make it a much better place for everybody. And so I also want to plant those seeds in them. Uh, traditional healing practices is, is a community practice, honoring our ancestors. Mentoring um, also, uh, I know that um, mentoring is not, doesn't just stop with the person I may be working at, th at that time because a lot of them are working in the community and giving the information in the community. And if I can help them to be better and to grow in the way that they need to grow, then that's what it's about. But also it's a two-way street. I learned so much from them. Michelle Elizabeth Lee is committed to preserving traditional African-American healing practices and knowledge, similar to that of well-known holistic health practitioner, Queen Afua, and educator, Louisa Tish, PhD, 
all align with the traditional African and indigenous healing and the maintenance of one's mental and physical health. The power to heal ourselves and to stay healthy is within us. And to get in touch with your bodies, our own bodies, because we should know us more than any doctor can tell us. And to know when, you know, to consult with the doctor, look at the doctor as not the all ill, all be all, but as a partner with you in maintaining your health. And that um, we come from a strong line of people who survived. So that resiliency and that knowledge is within us. I think this is a soap root, mm -hmm. and the Ohlone people, they pull this up, and um, they actually, it lathers, actually. Reporting from Oakland, California, I'm Anita Johnson. You've been listening to A History of Traditional Root Healing on Making Contact. Thanks to all the participants, experts, and editors who contributed to this week's show. If you've enjoyed this episode, Please write and review us twice on Apple Podcast, and then please share it with your friends and family via Facebook and on Instagram. We're making contact project. To learn more about us and access other episodes, visit us at radioproject.org. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.